I first met Michelle Bachman when she was a state senator in Minnesota. We were scheduled for a private tour of the U.S. Capitol led by David Barton, and it was with a small group. My wife was running late, not her fault. The luggage arrived late from the airport. Uh, our bags had been misplaced, but she said, go on, save our spot. We don't want to miss this. So she arrived late, and she showed up in a cab sharing with none other than the future Congresswoman, Michelle Bachman. Uh, we've become friends since then. In fact, we hosted one of her first coffees when she ran for Congress, and we've stayed connected through the years. So I want to welcome uh, Michelle, or should I say Congresswoman, or should I say Dean of the School of Government at Regent University, Michelle Bachman. Welcome to the Economic War Room. Kevin, thank you so much. I think the highest compliment is friend. I get to be friends with Kevin and Marnie Freeman, and that is a, that's a delight. We've probably known each other now over 20 years. I'm so grateful because we've experienced some of the most uh, climatic changes in our nation together, and it's been exciting to go through on that journey with you. Well, and now you're in academia. You're, you're at Regent University. You're doing fabulous things in the School of Government. How are you liking it? I do like it. I enjoy it very much. I didn't know what it would be like. My industry hasn't been academia. I had matriculated through myself. I have a doctorate degree. I have a postdoctorate degree in federal tax law. But I never thought that I would return to academia, but if there was a university that I would return to, it would be Regent University. I'm so proud of this school. It is clearly founded on the Judeo-Christian heritage of this nation, but it also embraces and respects high academic achievement as well. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited the fact that this is a university that's been around for over 40 years and it still clings to its mission of the orthodoxy of the faith and advancing intellectual pursuit on that firm foundation. So it's a pleasure to be able to be here and be a part of this. Well, it's tremendous. I know you have a beautiful future ahead. I want to go back into the past just a little bit. Uh, I remember so well, so vividly, August 2008, and we sat in a small room uh, with Republican leaders, and they were announcing, actually getting our thoughts on who should be vice president when John McCain runs. And, and they mentioned the Minnesota governor and a few others, and they settled on Sarah Palin. Do you remember that? I do. I remember that very well. It, it was an incredible time because, as you recall, we were in St. Paul, Minnesota, because that's where the Republican National Convention was going to be. So there are many meetings that were going on. And of course, anytime there's action, Kevin Freeman is there. And inevitably, usually I'm there, too. So our paths crossed. And that was quite a conversation because, as you said, they were going through all of the various possibilities. They hadn't decided yet. John McCain hadn't decided who his running mate would be, but there were some obvious names that were on the table. So they wanted to get input from all of us on what we thought. And Sarah Palin, I think, was a wonderful choice for John McCain. Well, not only that, I mean, the minute it was announced, there was an excitement in the room. The minute it was announced, the polls, John McCain and Sarah Palin shot to the lead in the polls, and they held that lead until September 11th, 2008. 
They were way ahead. But I remember we had a, a private conversation. We were talking. There were a few other people, and I was trying to share with you, because you were on the Intelligence Committee. You were on the Financial Services Committee. And I said, there's this thing called naked short selling. It's coming down the tracks. It is going to ruin our economy. It will change the election. And while we were talking, before I was able to get to the punchline, my phone rang, and it was my mom. And she said, Kevin, I have cancer and I only have a few months to live. And I left the convention that minute, flew back to see her in Oklahoma and spent the remaining months of her life. She died in January. And I watched naked short selling hit the stock market starting September 11th. And I saw it change. McCain Palin leading in the polls. All of a sudden, it's Obama Biden and they never look back. Well, this was an insight that I believe that you're, you're naturally an extremely bright person. So you saw that. But I think also, I think the spirit of God spoke to you, Kevin, and showed you things that nobody else was getting at that moment. You were prescient, but you were exactly right, just like you've been on so many other topics. That's why I'm glad that you have Economic War Room, because now you can share with a far wider audience what you'd shared with me in private, things on that sort. And so I'm very grateful for Economic War Room, and I'm glad that you are still heavily engaged in the fight, because we certainly need you now more than ever. Well, I appreciate that. I'll tell you, you know, that changed the world. Uh, Joe Biden himself said, he said it to John McCain. In a big audience, he said, you know, if the stock market hadn't collapsed, you would have been elected president. The world is different because of that unfortunate incident. And that happened on 9-11, the seventh I, anniversary, and here we are celebrating, well, remembering the 20th that's right. anniversary. That's right. The, the, the eight years of Barack Obama were without a doubt the firm foundation for even just the first eight months of Joe Biden. We can't we can't imagine where we are today, but we wouldn't have been where we are today but for those eight years of Barack Obama, without a shadow of a doubt. Well, you saw all this happening. I mean, like I said, you were on the Financial Services Committee. You were on the Intelligence Committee. What was that like during the incredible things that were going on? Well, I had a front row seat on history. And the, the hottest issue of our day at that time was actually financial services, because beginning in 2006, but also really culminating in 2008, we saw the collapse of the housing market and we saw the collapse of our economy in the United States. It was a terrible time, as people recall. And so I sat on the committee that was chaired by none other than Representative Barney Frank, House Financial Services. And I saw what is now known as the Dodd-Frank bill uh, chopped up in little pieces and presented one bill at a time. And each one of these bills, we had the Treasury Secretary, the head of the Fed. We had every leading uh, uh, economic person in front of our committee. And what was being proposed by the Obama administration had nothing to do with free market economics. It had everything to do with a complete and to total takeover of the United States con uh, of the United States uh, economy through uh, shredding the Constitution. I'll never I'll never forget having the Treasury Secretary in front of me, and while he was talking about the things they were going to do, asking him to tell me. Where in the Constitution could he find his authority to do what he was suggesting to Congress? He never could find it. I asked him three different times in the course of that testimony, where in the Constitution? It's the only time that he was ever flustered in front of our committee. Because, of course, 
they either don't know the Constitution or they don't care about the Constitution. I think both are true in their case. And so today what we're seeing is the same song, second verse, the Constitution is irrelevant. And what we're seeing is that laws are only made for one group of people, for people who consider themselves conservative, who consider themselves bound by the Constitution. Not so those who are currently in charge today. Well, we have to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk a little more about the threat that emerged from 2008 and what we need to be doing to reverse engines now. Congresswoman, like you said, you had a front row seat on history being made. Uh, but it wasn't all good history. What's the legacy of the 2008 Obama win? It's easy. I, I can say it in one word. I said it at the time. It is the establishment of lawlessness in the United States. I said it to my scheduler. I said it to my chief of staff. I said it to fellow members of Congress during the Obama administration when they upended one uh, private property right after another. And I said to everyone, what Obama's ultimate legacy will be is the establishment of lawlessness in the United States. And that's clearly what happened. If you recall, the attorney general at that time uh, was Eric Holder at the beginning of the Obama presidency. And they announced out of the gate that they would not uphold the American legal definition on marriage. For well over 225 years, we had had the definition of marriage as one man, one woman. And they said they would not uphold that definition. They were going to go with something else. And on one thing after another, if you remember, they sent thousands of pink slips out to car dealerships all across the United States. And they told car dealers, uh, you'll be done now. We're going, to, we're going to remove your de dealership license from you. This came from the administration. Or they also upended bankruptcy law, 150 years of bankruptcy law. One event after another, even to the point of saying that the American people could no longer go and buy an incandescent uh, light bulb in their local hardware store. Now we had to buy these dangerous uh, uh, light bulbs that had mercury inside of them. So it was one thing after another. And ultimately what happened, both domestically and on foreign policy, is that we were upended and lawlessness was established through this administration. One of the most egregious things we ever saw, Kevin, was the Iran agreement. When Barack Obama broke faith with the American people and instead struck a deal to strengthen the Iranian regime that was flat on its back, gasping for air. I can tell you that from the perch of the um, Intelligence Committee. Iran was gasping for air. And so Barack Obama gave them, we found out later, an infusion of $4 billion that he unilaterally sent over to them as kind of a, a last-ditch emergency infusion so they could keep going. And then we found out later that he was privately constructing the deal with Iran that would infuse over $150 billion to the point that eventually they dropped out of the back of a plane pallets filled with all sorts of uh, uh, money and American money, French francs, uh, Swiss francs, you name it. Um, it was uh, thrown out of the back of a cargo plane so that the Iranian regime would be strengthened, enabled, and be a leader in that portion of the world. Why? Why? Why would an American president take the side of America's enemies 
And yet that's what we saw under President Obama. He strengthened all of our enemies around the world and he weakened our ties with our allies. And what's worse, he weakened the United States of America economically and he weakened us globally on the world stage. And he set us up for where we are today in Afghanistan under Joe Biden. Same song, different verse. I mean, we left, how many billions of dollars worth of equipment to strengthen our enemy? And, and we angered the British and the French and everybody else because we pulled out our uh, armed forces before we got the people out? That's crazy. Well, that's right. And the direct link to today, if you recall, when I was on Intel Committee, uh, the big thing from the progressive left is they demanded that we close Guantanamo Bay, which was which was the holding ground for radical, violent terrorists. So we had the worst of the worst bad guys held in that facility. I visited Guantanamo Bay and saw some of those people who were held down there. And so remember, there was a deserter, Bo, Bo Bergdahl. And President Obama effected a trade whereby we took the five worst terrorists that we were holding. We released them out, not we, Barack Obama released these terrorists out of Guantanamo Bay together with $5 billion. And we released them to Qatar under, they pinky promised that they would be good boys and they wouldn't go back to their terrorist ways. Well, one of those five leaders today was the mastermind behind the collapse and the takedown in Afghanistan. And he will now be, in all likelihood, the new president or emir of Afghanistan. The same individual whom we held behind bars and Barack Obama gave with a $5 billion check is now the mastermind to take us down in Afghanistan. That's Barack Obama. That's so sad. And when you look at all of these different things we're talking about, they all involve money. And it is kind of an intersection between those two committees that you were on, uh, money and national security. We're really seeing economic warfare being carried out against us. And we're watching the Biden administration going down the exact same road where they're ignoring the Constitution, ignoring the rule of law, and just pushing things, dangerous things that threaten our future and the world, really. Oh, it, no human being in their right mind would take even one of the monstrous actions that the Biden administration has taken. Leaving the front door open to America at our southern border, letting, in fact, urging everyone to come into America is absolutely unbelievable during a pandemic when all of us are supposed to max up, mask up, vax up. They want even little two-year-olds getting vaccinated. Why in the world would you do something like that when you let anyone and their brother come across our southern border and you bring in plane loads, 120,000 people and 118,000 of the people who came in from Afghanistan were unvetted Afghans who certainly aren't vaccinated. I didn't see anybody wearing a mask when they were on the cargo planes. We have a huge problem with Joe Biden and all he can do, if you noticed, every one of his bills that he puts forward, Kevin, it's well in an excess of a trillion dollars. He's already committed American spending to multiple trillions. He wants another six trillion more through his phony infrastructure bill. I wage that by the end of this year, remember he's only eight months into his 
presidency so far. I wager by the end of this year, he will have pushed fully $10 trillion in spending. And your viewers need to know that it wasn't very long ago, just a couple of years ago, when the entire U.S. budget was $2 trillion. $2 trillion. That's now the size of one small bill that Joe Biden is trying to push through the Treasury. People need to understand, Kevin, that the United States is the brokest nation in the history of the earth. No nation has ever been as indebted as we are. There's virtually no hope of us ever paying off this kind of debt unless we radically restructure our government. It can be done but it has to be done by an adult who is in the room, and it can't be done by someone who's on vacation, as Joe Biden is, who believes in more spending, fantasy spending. But fantasy spending ends up in reality-based economic misery and collapse. And don't think it can happen, because it will. Well, we're gonna have to take another break. And when we come back, I wanna talk about two things. One is China, and the other is hope. I want to talk about the good things that we can see ahead as Americans. Michelle, when you were in Congress, I remember we went, uh, you know, we talked about this a lot. I briefed a lot of your colleagues. Nobody could see China as a threat. Everybody seemed to say, oh, they're a trading partner. Oh, they're really capitalists and they're really on our side. When did the uh, people finally wake up? I think people finally woke up. People like Bill Gertz were out there for a long time trying to lay that groundwork of, of the trajectory of the threat with China. But I think now that we see that we don't have access to supply chains anymore, now people get it. And they've woken up. They've heard about the Belt and Road Initiative, but now they see that we're suffering. And we definitely are. And that China has the upper hands. They've stolen from us for decades. And now they have what they've stolen from us and they're using it for their benefit to build them up. And I think that Mark Stein, the great writer, the great commentator was the first to see this really decades ago. And Mark had said in his book, um, uh, After America and America Alone, that the transition to power from the United States to China will not be a pretty one. When the baton of global power was passed from Britain to the United States, somewhere in the 1940s and 50s, it was a very smooth transfer of global power from Pax Britannica to Pax Americana. There will no be Pax China. There is no peace. The peace would only be on China's terms, and that would be with every other nation under their thumb serving as servants and slaves to them. When you see how China is cruel toward their own people, then you have just a little inkling of what it would be like for any other nation. Well, we've seen an unbelievable wealth transfer. In fact, in 1999, when the Chinese wrote the book, Unrestricted Warfare, the size of the Chinese economy was one-tenth the size of the American economy, roughly the size of Italy. And we've watched over those 20 years as we've transferred so much wealth. You know, our total debt in the year 2000, uh, George Bush was elected and he was saying, you know what, we're, we're bringing in so much money, we're going to have to give a tax cut. It was under $10 trillion. Now you're talking about Joe Biden putting $10 trillion of debt in just in the first year or two of his presidency. It's crazy what, how much things have shifted in the last 20 years. It's crazy the way that it's shifted. And we're, we're on the cusp, as I know you've been talking to your viewers about, of China calling the shots 
once the United States dollar is no longer the global currency, we're effectively the exchange rate, the dollar. Once that happens uh, where the United States dollar isn't, then the bottom falls out and we will see a completely different basket. China intends to be that basket, that denominator of currency, and they intend to do it digitally. We're living in the most tumultuous times in our lifetime, and that's why it's important that people watch shows like Economic War Room so they know what's going on, they know how to hedge their bets and take right calculations for themselves, for their families, for the future. Well, you know, you're doing a great job with Regent University. We're training up leaders, and I run into Regent graduates, and they're the best, they're the brightest. You know, there are a handful of schools, like Hillsdale and Liberty and Regent. You know, I so admire the work that you're doing there. I want to ask you to help us. Uh, we've got the NSIC Institute, National Security Investment Consultant Institute, and we believe it's an economic war. And if it's an economic war, we have to help people weaponize their money. I mean, uh, I just turned 60, and those of our generation, uh, we have money, but we only have the same vote as an 18-year-old, as my two 18-year-old, 19-year-old kids. We got the same vote, but we can weaponize our money. The problem is people don't know how to invest. Do they invest in China and not invest in China? They hear about ESG, environment, social justice, governance. They don't know what to do. So we're training financial advisors. We're borrowing a page from academia. We're working with Liberty University online. But would you come and help us educate financial advisors so they can help their clients weaponize their money? Oh, 100%. I'm a big yes. And we want to have what you're teaching here at Regent University as well. We have a large business school, a graduate school of business and undergraduate school of business. And we need your expertise here at Regent as well. So we look forward to cooperating and partnering together for the advancement of all people across the United States and across the world to have good techniques and good strategies in their back pocket to be able to hedge and protect and also grow role into the future. Well, you know, over the last 20 years, and, and I started in the financial services industry. I started, uh, I've been a stockbroker. I've been an investment manager. I worked for the great John Templeton for a decade. Uh, but when, when I started, uh, index investing was nothing. People didn't invest in an index. They bought individual stocks and they invested in things they believed in. But over the past 20 years or so, people have given that up and they said, I'll just hand my money over to BlackRock or Vanguard or, or, or State Street. And what they've done is they've just handed off the control of their own money. And it's been invested in all kinds of things that go against the, the desires and heart of America, the belief in individual liberty, the belief in free markets. Um, we need help because we're going to have to train 10,000 financial advisors over the next five years to have even a chance at fighting this fight. That'd be about a trillion dollars in capital. I know we've talked about ESG. We've talked about individuals. But this isn't a fight we can trust Washington to do for us anymore. It's going to have to come back to the people, right? It absolutely has to come back to the people because if there's anything that we're seeing right now as we're having this conversation is that the decisions that are coming out of D.C. are nothing less than monstrous. I have never seen decisions this poorly made for the, for the worst reasons, and they don't have the United States' best interests at heart. It is a bizarre time that we're living in. So that's why what you're talking about, Kevin, is extremely kind to people 
because what you're trying to do is equip people so that they know how best to protect themselves the assets they have now going forward we need that because i think what we're looking at is building parallel um, institutions if you will i think we're going to have to come up with our own parallel health care because we're seeing even there's been threats from the United States government. If you don't get a vaccine, and again, I'm not getting into that war right now, but if you don't choose to get a vaccine, maybe your health insurance won't cover you. Maybe Medicare won't be there for you. Maybe you'll be, get cuts on your social security. That's why we have to have build, I think, uh, parallel institutions, whether be they financial, medical, uh, you name it, we need to have parallel institutions because we can't trust the better interests, that our better interests will be watched out for by the monsters that are currently in charge in D.C. And I, I don't say that lightly. I used to serve there. And it isn't because I'm gone. Now I think I can use pejorative terms. It's because we've never seen the types of actions that we're seeing now. We've never seen the United States actually prevent private planes from taking off out of Afghanistan loaded with Americans. And our government is saying, no, you can't leave. We're living in a very different time. That's why we have to have very different strategies to protect ourselves in the future. No doubt. Well, those are some of the bad things. Give us some hope. What, what gives you hope? Well, what gives me hope is my faith, my faith in Jesus Christ, my faith in the unshakable truth of the word of God. Uh, you know, right now, for instance, I'm in the middle of hosting 40 days of prayer and fasting. We've had thousands of people respond who want to confess their sins and repent. And now we're in the final 10 days of our 40 days where we're focusing, looking full in the face of God. And we're, we're studying his character, his attributes, focusing on him. This is what I'm seeing, Kevin. I'm seeing people turning to the Lord now and recognizing there is a better way than the way and the road that we're going down. And it's all about trust, faith, belief. There's been bad times on this earth before. God gets us through them. He asks only that we turn to him, confess our sins, and we get in a path of obedience and then we'll see the miracles begin. He does it every time. That's why they're called miracles, because he enters into our world when we invite him to come in and he turns our life around. That's our greatest hope. Amen. I just say amen. Thank you, Congresswoman, Dean, Michelle. God bless you and thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you, dear friend. I appreciate it. All right, let me turn to you. Do you have a financial advisor? If so, you need to nominate them for our training at economicwarroom.com forward slash advisor. And if you're not a subscriber to our free economic battle plans, you can sign up. They're free, economicwarroom.com. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from The Economic War Room.